0: Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au.
1: Solidarity forever!
0: Good
2: morning everybody, this is Annie and Kim on Solidarity Breakfast.
4: Morning everyone.
2: Yeah, it's raining outside if you're uh, not outside your doona and toasty warm
4: inside your bed, so don't get out. Just listen. Yeah, stay. Listen to us. It was lovely yesterday, though.
2: I know it's quite extraordinary. And uh, as I was coming off the tram, getting to the station, I pr- brought out my trusty umbrella, and the person beside me went, "Oh!" And I said, "Be prepared, because <laughs> <laughs> we're in Melbourne <laughs> um, today." We've got quite a lot of things on. We've uh, a lot of things have happened over the uh, two weeks that we haven't been on. Uh, on July the eighteenth, we had the anti-fascist rally. In Melbourne, but also on the same day, Kim. Uh, they didn't really register with me until Ronnie came back. But he, uh, the closing ceremony of the Pacific Games in Port Moresby, isn't that interesting? Mm. Anyway, on the same day, yeah, on the same day, and it was interesting because they're both expressions of uh, a democratic uh, pushback against. Uh, uh, prevailing notions, and so we. I had a quick chat with Ronnie about what happened, and uh, also I've uh, gathered a, a an interview with Cogo, who was a street medic on the day, July the eighteenth. Uh, you were there, I was yeah. there. We experienced it. The uh, he calls it chemical warfare. We called it uh, pepper spray, uh, and uh, he has a uh, thing to tell us about a story, a story to tell us about what happened on that day. Uh, from uh, uh, there, Uh, they were attacked by pepper spray. Yeah, the uh,
4: medics when they were trying to treat people.
2: That's right. It was uh, quite an extraordinary affair. Anyway, uh, later in the day, uh, uh, the morning, we've got uh, rank and file, of course. Uh, That's a look into the union scene in Australia. We're following that up with uh, uh, the week week that was with Kevin. And uh, later on, we're going to have a little bit of a look at the uh, refugee issue at the ALP conference You were on the outside, I was on the inside. Hoi! 3CR, Solidarity Breakfast,
0: we've got our finger on the pulse. The Kurdish Workers' Party, otherwise known as the PKK, was established in 1984 to fight for the self-determination of Kurdish people in Turkey. It is supported by millions of Kurds, and in recent times has played a crucial role in defending Kobani and Rojava against ISIS. Yet the Australian government named the PKK as a prescribed terrorist organisation in 2005, and it has remained on the list ever since. The listing comes up for review in August 2015. Australians for Kurdistan Committee in Melbourne is calling for the PKK to be delisted, and are collecting endorsements. You can add yours by going to pkk.org Australians for Kurdistan Committee in Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.
2: Yes, terrible stuff happening over there at the moment. Uh, the Turks are... Uh, Bombing the shit out of them, I'll have to say. And they're using the uh, notion that uh, they are a terrorist organisation as a reason for why they're allowed to do it.
4: It's ridiculous, these so-called stateless people. It's just the way that they've drawn up these ridiculous borders. Yeah, outrageous.
2: Anyway, moving right along, um, we'll go to our chat with uh, Ronnie Carini, uh, West Palpio, activist and musician who was at the Pacific Games on July the 18th.
5: Yes, so I went to Papua New Guinea to attend the Pacific Games, the closing ceremony. I'm a musician and a dancer, and so I've been playing with this um, good friend, Iri Leka Ingram, who happened to be uh, contracted as um, with this production called Makoda Production um, in the opening and closing ceremony of the Pacific Games. And so he called in his um, good musicians and friends from around the region to come and um, participate in the closing ceremony. And so I was um, fortunate to go up there with um, another West Papuan um, dancer and also um, some Melbourne based um, artist, um, percussionist, and also um, a DJ. Yes, yeah, so it was great vibe, especially when going up there to see the the spirit of the games, the Pacific Games and the Pacific Islanders, and it was very peaceful, and people were very happy in terms of um, the the welcoming and the, of the locals in in Port Moresby.
2: Makes them feel unus- like home. Yeah, it's pretty unusual, isn't it? Because uh, the Asia Pacific Games is really big, so they must have invested a lot. In the infrastructure for this,
5: absolutely, the government invested 1.6 billion kina, and and to to build the uh, the infrastructure and to get especially the stadiums and the facilities and and also for security and everything. So within three three years, um to to get that up to speed and, um, yeah, everything. Like Papua New Guinea, especially in Port Moresby, the facilities is of a world-class standard. Mm -hmm. And so that's why Papua New Guinea is now uh, bidding to host the Commonwealth Games.
2: Oh, how fascinating! And so, as a West Papuan musician, you had an, an interesting experience, didn't you? At the uh, concluding part of the games, so you had an idea about what you're going to be doing, but it, you were stymied, weren't you?
5: Absolutely, yes. And so, going up there and knowing that coming from West Papua, there in you know, all the different artists will represent the region, and you know either do a song or dance to represent the greater Pacifica. And so um, I went up there with the knowledge that that's what all the artists and musicians and dancers will do. And so throughout the week, we were rehearsing um, each of our songs and dances. And so everyone was so excited, a lot of the different artists, and I'm so grateful to meet some of the big-name artists in the Pacific, like... Fiji, whose artist name is Fiji, and he's from Fiji, and also um, from someone who grew up in Papua New Guinea, but I'm um, based in US, in Hawaii, um, Ocean, and also George Stella himself, a renowned uh, PNG artist yeah, in jo- the Pacific. and
2: He's fantastic. Yeah,
5: he is amazing. And also, J Boog represents the Polynesian. Um, um, people in the pacific so they're big names in in the pacific region with their music and so the rehearsals everyone get to meet each other and it's amazing to share the same views and all those um, musicians are conscious of the um, corruption issue environmental issues and human rights issues as well and so they wanted to send a message to the people and the government as well that you know as part of people coming and you know enjoying the sports and celebrating the cultures and the, the diversity it's also important to send a message that in the pacific there are real issues that we're facing through climate change corruption and also the human rights issues around the region with regards to like in West Papua and Kanaki as well. And so given with that in mind, every artist were, you know, happy to come out and sing a song, you know, one for entertainment, but at the same time to send a message to to the people. And leading up to the soundcheck, which is on the day, the Saturday, when it's going to be the closing ceremony. Um we were told that we are not allowed to sing anything that is free West Papua, anything that is anti corruption or anything that is um against the government. Everything has to be positive and you know in the spirit of celebration. And that just changed the dynamics of the dif- all the artists cuz that's throughout the week we've been rehearsing preparing cuz every artist is just given 5 minutes to sing so it's either one or two songs they just have to shorten the songs each and yeah that for George Stalek he was told straight up that he's not going to sing West Papua the song that um has been known he's very around for yeah. yeah and and that was very sad to to hear that and even i got told us well not to sing one of the other songs that we um, practice, um, Sorong to Samurai," And that's um, about the land in New Guinea, between West Papua and Papua New Guinea. Because it's one land, one people, and yeah, one culture.
2: And it's only divided by a colonial past, isn't it?
5: Absolutely, yes. And so we wanted to, yeah, just reinforcing the the Melanesian kinship, or yeah, the spirit of one people and one land. And, yeah, that wasn't even um, allowed, but um, it was um, courageous enough of the musicians and the singers. And on the on the night, um, we knew that we won't do flag dance um, and no painting of um, the mm-hmm. Morning Star and not singing one of these um, famous songs by George Stalek. And that was already... We knew that that's not going to happen. Um, what I did was... Um, managed to wear my Free wasp Purple T-shirt inside and put another layer on top of it. And with the Sorong to summarize, song, we didn't make a mention of it until we came we on and it. we just did it. And so that was amazing and a, a great opportunity that we could um, have that moment when people could see on the television or hear on the radio that this is a song and it speaks of what is happening in West Papua, and they could see visual of West Papuans, st- even on stage. And for me, I was playing the bass, and then I, the other West Papuan brother, Sammy Roem, was um, dancing, doing a dance piece as well. So that was a moment that we could um, share with um, everyone there. And there were well over 10,000 people at the closing ceremony, so... We, we hope that they, you know, we send the message out there and it has sparked a lot of conversation now in Papua New Guinea at this moment about why the government, um, censoring, um, artists, um, what they have to sing and what they don't have to sing. So it's, it's creating this conversation now in PNG, which is um, a great thing.
6: sun e
7: go down e come up no stop
2: yeah, the wonderful George Taluk, not being allowed to sing such a beautiful song
4: Oy! yeah, freedom, freedom
2: <laughs> uh, well you 're on solidarity breakfast with Annie and Kim, and uh, we 're going to move on straight away to uh, Kog- kogo, one of the street medics. Uh, Kim, you were at the rally on July the eighteenth. It was quite a spectacular affair, we, uh, uh, heated up with the uh, absolutely amazing uh, pepper spray. But uh, as Kogo says, he doesn't call it pepper spray; he calls it chemical warfare. That's exactly what it is. Unbelievable. Okay, so let's uh, let's what, hear what Kogo's got to say. Can you give uh, our listeners an understanding of what the street medics do? Because you're part of the street medics, aren't you? Yes, indeed. Yes.
8: Uh, well, thank you. It's nice to be here in the heart of uh, independent uh, media, uh, friendly media. Um, the nature of street medicine uh, actually goes back 50 years. Uh, not many people are aware of that. They may just think, oh, you know, that crew's always doing first aid for these lefty lefty events and see us there with our crosses. But um, actually, we, we have a proud uh, lineage going back, right back to the uh, civil rights uh, movement, actually, when the UNHCR, uh, which were a bunch of doctors and physios and nurses in their white coats, went down to Mississippi in the uh, Freedom Rides, uh, believing that they'd better use their medical privilege uh, to make a difference. Unfortunately, said physios, doctors and nurses, uh, their medical privilege didn't save them from sort of police uh, brutality, Ku Klux Klan brutality. And um, they left that summer well, some of them left, some of them stayed, but they developed that summer a critique of um, radical health. That is uh, how ill health is structural; it's caused by the conditions that people live in. And as they stayed down there, they developed um, various streams of radical health, of which street medicine, which we practice, is one. Uh, to that event, to that extent, uh, street medics learned all the way through the Vietnam War protests. Uh, to First Nations struggles uh, of the North American people's Um, skills, first aid, medical skills that are there to support uh, and uh, make protesters, people who are struggling for a better world and believe in social justice, um, make them feel supported, make them feel safe. uh, And most of all, but we don't you know, this is our raison d'etre, uh, most of all, to be there to put a bandage on a wound, or in this case, as we saw on July the 18th, to uh, treat the results of uh, chemical weapons being deployed against a civilian population.
2: It was pretty extraordinary, and uh, the street medics weren't um, uh, immune from it either. The ABC, for example, had a report that I saw that said quite clearly that the police were forced. To uh, use pepper spray.
8: Yes, uh, that's complete nonsense. uh, With reference to how the street medics um, got pepper sprayed, Um, what we got to bear in mind is um, there's a level of accountability that must be held here, and you know the police are legally uh, obliged to use. Uh, chemical weapons or pepper spray to de-escalate violence or when they're under threat and this is key here Uh, what we saw on july the 18th was huge amounts of indiscriminate uh pepper spraying the alleyway by the theater where we were treating over easily i'm not exaggerating here over 100 people came through in the end so you're either telling me there were 100 people that the police had to de-escalate or they were very very indiscriminate and the nature of the deployment of pepper spray it's it's not a straight line it doesn't just get one target it cone effect it carries on the breeze it can be carried by a touch it's got many vectors that it can get contaminate people yeah like i said there's no way that there's over 100 people that they were targeted individually one thing that comes through time and time again when people are pepper sprayed it's not just the confusion and the pain and the fear, one thing that comes through particularly bystanders, and this is something that's going to always stick with me about July the 18th is this sense of violation, this sense of I did nothing wrong, why Why have they done this to me, why? I heard that so often when I was trying to get people's eyes irrigated or in one case somebody had um, contact lenses and had to remove those contact lenses quickly because the chemicals in pepper spray can actually cause corneal burns uh, and this sense of violation from people who were bystanders, people who came to stand against uh, the rise of the far right and people who, for one, who actually, know who are Nazis, uh, they came to just stand and protest. And the sense of violation that I just came here to actively demonstrate to use my right to protest.
2: The... Uh thing that was very interesting about that whole day and I was wondering when did you discover that uh, that area uh, in front of the parliament uh, uh, going down to the beginning of uh, Burke Street was called a designated area the lead up to this particular rally they had concerns about there being a uh, firearms and this was because of the beat up by the uh, Reclaim Australia people, or, or whoever, the patriotic, uh, the United Patriotic Front, more likely, and uh, this on Facebook and things of this nature, and also because when they were searching a bus coming from Sydney that they found a gun. But, of course, this was then focused on the anti-fascist rally because we were watching the United uh, Patriotic Front being uh, escorted by the police into their rally point. Now, what they were saying was that this was a restricted area and therefore the police were able to do a whole range of things that they wouldn't be able to do in other areas because of the fear of violence. Yes. um, So you weren't aware of that?
8: Well, one of the best things about working in this campaign against racism and fascism with lots of groups on the left and community groups was... um, we reached out and tried to communicate with the police our intent. And it was raised at one point there was going to be a designated zone. Now, I'm no legal person, but we were told that if it's going to be a designated zone, they have to do it 12 hours beforehand and put up lots of posters and signage saying this is a designated zone. So we were very surprised come Friday night, it hadn't there hadn't been anything put out in the media or even around the, <laughs> the metro that um, it was a designated, designated zone. So when we actually got there, um, one no two of our medics got their bags searched in the end. And obviously, we've got nothing to hide. We're medics. And I think it's really important. This is a really important point, is that in the run-up to July the 18th, the counter rally, um, um, as medics, we were sharing on our website nothing but safety tips, advice how to look after yourself, saying always, you know, make sure you're your friends with your buddy system, make sure you debrief afterwards and, you know, there's no, there's, no, there's no crime in being scared and supporting, as a community, we're supporting. So that was the run-up to it. Compare that to Reclaim Australia and the United Patriots Front, who are using Facebook and their media platforms to threaten violence, uh, saying that they were going to be packing hacking, whatever that is uh, a euphemism for, as well as actually sharing a video of uh, an anti-fascist getting murdered in Spain uh, from a few years ago Oh my goodness So this was the the climate that they were creating this sense of aggression and uh, the campaign against racism and fascism was, you know, kept the similar community tone uh, and uh, very disciplined and we talked about support Uh, Hence why we had legal observers and street medics and very good marshals in the day. But as you just said, when wherever this ephemeral designated zone was, when we entered it, all those police powers were turned on us. Whereas opposed to the people who came down from Sydney with a gun in their luggage.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm absolutely sure that uh, only the anti-fascist rally people were actually sprayed with pepper spray.
8: I'd say it's even—it's not just the the chemical weapon attack, Annie. It's the fact that the police facilitated actual Nazis. There was people outside Parliament doing that Zieg hell Nazi salute. You can see the media. You know, people were supposed to. They facilitated that. Now, if they're doing that in the name of free freedom to speech, this isn't a climate when Tony Abbott has turned against Q&A when I can't remember the gentleman's name, he he, he mentioned um, how um, the current state of fear is radicalising young people, and then the government turned against Q&A and pretty much shut them down and threatened them, in effect, silencing them.
2: No Uh, free speech there. No free speech there. But okay, in the front of Victorian Parliament, with over 400 police supporting it.
8: Exactly. So this is a really strong parallel we have to draw and also from if we're talking about freedom of speech Reclaim Australia which is you know basically a middle class movement that does a lot of posturing and pandering to the media Um, this movement is designed specifically to shut down public space so people from the the Muslim community are too scared to walk our streets, are too scared to take a public platform Um, so no freedom of speech there again
2: Yeah, it's very confusing, isn't it? (laughs) It's
8: very confusing. (laughs) That's a very polite way of putting it.
2: Yeah.
8: As we were coming around onto the road, the first casualty came to us. We had a number of crews working on the ground. We were working like buddies of two or three. When the first patient came to me, we started to de irrigate them there, and then more and more people came and screams of medic, 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 went out through. And it became quite apparent to myself that we needed to get these people to somewhere away from the crowd surge, particularly down by the theatre. There was lots of surging. Um, as I've learned out later, that was from actually like um, the boneheads, uh, the, the, the fascist people, making runs and then the police coming in behind them and the, the, the fights that went around there. So I, I looked around and thought the best safe zone was the alleyway. We have to get them on their knees and we've got a special um, mix to help irrigate their eyes. We all carrying this, and within our first two or three casualties, all our equipment was gone—our bandages, our gauze, uh, our irrigation—because we weren't prepared for something this, this epic. And they it were... was
2: quite incredible, wasn't it? Oh, um, I, I, I yeah. mean, the the actual sprays themselves looked to me like the uh, the sparks that come off a welding <laughs> a gun. That's what it was like in spray. Yeah,
8: I mean, I've studied this stuff. I've been studying it since Occupy, and one gentleman came up to me and he was picking off his face in big clots, like scabs. Uh, And you can tell he's obviously in agony and confused and, like, we have to get off. But it was just, like, big globs burning into his skin and he's effectively blind. It was Um, terrible, actually. I think what we have to bear in mind about pepper spray for crowd control, because back in, say, Thatcher's day... You know, they found out that using truncheons, well, it doesn't play well with the TV audiences at home. Whereas what you've got here is an insidious psychological weapon that makes people suffer for days. And then myself and our collective, we are still supporting psychologically uh, people who are suffering to this day. There are still people who are having breathing difficulties who are, can't sleep. Um, so,
2: in effect, so we're talking about 10 days later. 10
8: days later. To get back to when you were saying about how the medics got pepper sprayed, to give you some context there, at that point, I had a patient who was deteriorating to the point that he was losing consciousness and he was having trouble breathing. He was red in the face and confused. So, on top of all the other people we had, we had to prioritise uh, these this kind of patient. Um, he, we had put him on the recovery position. We couldn't move him. We couldn't evacuate him. We did actually manage to evacuate quite a few people from that alleyway because we knew it wasn't safe. Uh, even during the treating of these people, we had boneheads, uh, these these people, these fascist people coming and trying to kick us. You know, doing martial arts. So all the people that you know, the media are being rude about. It, but when bandanas and stuff, the young people, they were protecting the medics from skinheads charging us and trying to kick our heads off like golf balls on tees. Or we we're treating casualties. But go back to the casualty I was treating Uh, I was really worried about his airway. I'm a a healthcare professional and I was really worried about his airway. We were trying to facilitate ambulances and they weren't allowing ambulances in. We'd made three calls to dispatch by this point. We had formed what we call a privacy circle. So bystanders surround us to give confidentiality so we can treat in a safe zone. And we needed that safe zone because we were being targeted as well by... All I can tell you is I'm looking after this guy's airway and really worried and I've got somebody from the the crowd assisting me and another medic with this casualty and the other guy is actually ringing in the ambulance and then I could hear shouts and all I could hear because basically my eyes are focused on the patient all I could hear was shouts from people on our community shouting uh, medics there's somebody injured in here they're providing first aid medics within all these shouts and I could tell from the timbre of their voices the alarm the panic in their voices that something was going on then I got a real sense of bearing in mind I'm in the middle of the road on my knees over this guy's airway this sense of darkness and pressure and then I heard screams, and I looked up and I saw an orange I can't describe any better it was an orange tidal wave coming over the heads of the people in the privacy circle. They're facing out. So in effect, they gave warning to the police. They were sprayed. The police knew that there was a casualty within who was already second suffering because of one dose of pepper spray. So A, our community whilst defending people providing first aid and preventing, pr- protecting someone who was deteriorating, took it upon themselves to cop a face full of pepper spray to protect us. Secondly, the wave came down, so myself and the other medic, we put our head, our bodies over the guy's airway so he wouldn't get any of the, the pepper spray. Uh, the burning in the back of my neck and, the, and my shoulders is pretty much gone now. The other medic I was down therewith she had some significant symptoms for days and days afterwards mainly respiratory uh but we had to protect this guy's airway i'm sure if he had got another dose anyway at that point obviously the privacy circle dissolved because everybody else was in pain and uh yeah the port uh, i'm not sure if it's port or the people in the jumpsuits basically um charged and then they realized that they were surrounding people providing first aid to a a casualty on the ground well they obviously realised it before we'd be told them enough I, I can't I can't begin to think about the thought processes that brought it to that position where not one of them questioned their orders not one of them had the decent human compassion to step down and stop following orders I can't I can't believe those thought processes
2: So what happened after that? What happened?
8: Uh. So <laughs> So, the whoever is in charge of that those realize realize uh, they replaced our community who were in the circle. They made their own circle around us. So I'm looking up and going, "Oh, this is an interesting turn of events." Whilst my back's on fire and worried about my other my friend and the other guy in the there. The guy, the patient, is still deteriorating, and. Then the, the, whoever, the officer and sergeant, whoever they are, his in charge, started shouting at me, shouting at us to get out, get out, move. And I had to explain to him in calm terms that, you know, I'm a medic and this guy I'm very concerned about. They facilitated, after we'd been trying to get ambulances in for 45 minutes, they facilitated an ambulance for access within five minutes from that point.
1: Hi, this is Malcolm from the Sleepy Jackson. You're listening to 3CR,
7: 8.55am. Please support community radio and your local music scene.
3: On this week's edition of Rank and File Radio, we pay tribute to union legend, the late, great John Cummins. His wife, Di Cummins, is a special guest on this week's edition of Rankin and File Radio to discuss the life and times of Cummo, the foundation established in his honour and the annual fundraising dinner coming up. Better known as Cummo, John was the Victorian Secretary of the Builders' Labourers Federation until amalgamation into the CFMU in 1994. From 1996 until his untimely passing in August of 2006, Camo was the Victorian President of the Construction Division of the CFMEU. Cummins was also a long-serving presenter on 3CR, co-hosting the Concrete Gang for many years. And welcome to 3CR, Doi, where your husband, the late husband John, was well known. Thank you, Marcus.
9: Um, Good to be with you.
3: OK, so firstly, if we take a look at uh, John's early life, how did he become active in the trade union movement?
9: Um, well, John came from an ordinary um, uh, working background. He's, um, he grew up in Northcote, in okay. the northern suburbs. Um, he, you know, studied at uni. I think that's, that's well known. Uh, and during his uni holidays, he got jobs on construction sites. And so that was... Um, provided a balance to his um, learning um, at university and uh, I think that also uh, radicalized him to some extent because of the poor conditions that they uh, that were on those sites at the time.
3: okay and if I'm correct he was a, a scaffolder on the ill-fated Westgate bridge project uh,
9: but not when the bridge went down okay he wasn't on the bridge when it went down. Yeah, he worked for um, he he worked on the bridge for a while, but not during that period.
3: Okay, and John was arrested uh, multiple times throughout his life uh, simply for going onto construction sites to do what was his job to represent his members.
9: That's right. Yeah, um, it made me smile when I. It's funny that I smile when <laughs> I think about that. Yes, um, yeah, John uh, was an organizer with the what was then the Builders Labourers Federation the BLF, uh, and um, that went through difficult times where the government at the time, the state government, which happened to be a Labor government, uh, was attempting to re- deregister the BLF because of their uh, militant activities. And uh, John maintained a right to organise his members as long as the members um, uh, remain members and wanted him to... Uh, you know, support them in their campaign to improve their um, their safety and conditions on the work sites. So he um, insisted on responding to um, the uh, calls of his members and went on to building sites and that was seen that he was um, uh, in contempt of court.
3: And there was a prominent dispute in the Bitter Times in 1990, uh, the 417 St Kilda Road project where he was uh, repeatedly removed by the uh, police
9: yes um uh, there there were a lot of um, as you would know or or some of your listeners uh, might know there were a lot of uh, construction workers involved in that dispute um, and that picket line and um, John certainly wasn't the only one that was uh, under pressure and uh, and um, arrested at that site um, i'll just say to you that uh, one of the things that I find ironic about all of this is that um, People ask me about some of the things that John did on construction sites, and um, I'm happy to share uh, his history as I know it. But um, not being a construction worker myself, my um, my my understanding and knowledge of some of those of, of some of those campaigns is limited.
3: And sadly, John passed away in August um, 2006 from a brain tumour. And following this, the John Cummins Memorial Foundation was established to one of the legacy of John and. Uh, His legacy looms large today.
9: Yeah, thank you. Uh, Thanks for for those words, Marcus, uh, about John. Yes, it does. Um, During uh, John's career in the BLF and, um, you know, obviously more recently in the CFMEU, uh, proud um, uh, part of the leadership team in the CFMEU he was. Um, Yes, and sadly he he passed away from a brain tumour, as you said. And uh, yes, we started uh, friends of family, uh, friends and comrades of John, uh, we formed the John Cummins Memorial Fund to uh, to raise funds to honour his legacy and um, happy to share, share with you what we do.
3: Okay, so you've already mentioned the John Cummins Memorial uh, Foundation supports um, individuals and how do individuals or groups apply for these grants and scholarships?
9: Um, we've got two, two areas that we support. So we established um, the brain tumour support service at Austin Health. Uh, John uh, uh, received treatment uh, during his illness at Austin. And at the time, at that time, the services there were basic to say the least. So um, uh, that prompted us to um, partner with the Austin to uh, to fund a, a much needed service to support people diagnosed with a brain tumour. Uh, so that service, we're proud of that service, and that service expands, has expanded since we started it. And um, this year, we funded ninety-seven thousand to um, expand the service and for the service uh, for some of the patients to participate in clinical trials. Okay. Um, the other thing that we do is that we provide scholarships. We call them Dare to Dream, um, and so for their therefore, young secondary students um, experiencing financial disadvantage, and that's how people can. Um, uh, I suppose uh, people that might, have, uh, that might be listening that have got um, young, young ones uh, in secondary college might uh, look on our website to apply. Um, the applications come through the school okay. and we look for, for young students that uh, show promise, um, have got some talent or want to pursue a particular, particular area and uh, uh, need the funds to assist.
3: OK. How many scholarships has the Cummins Foundation uh, been able to award since it was uh, launched?
9: Well, we do them annually um, and um, they close middle of October each year, and as I said, it goes through the school, so we don't have direct contact with any families or any individuals. Um, and uh, for this school year, we awarded 44 scholarships. They're up to $1,000, uh, and um, we granted just over 35000 for those scholarships. Um, and we've um, we've been privileged, I suppose you'd call it, to support some, you know, some talented young people, um, you know, in our in our school system. And uh, as told to us by the by the uh, by the teachers and coordinators at the school, and uh, some of their stories are um, are pretty inspiring, I can tell you. And I think the important thing for us is that it provides a balance to what we do. We sort of, uh, you know, we support the Brain Tumour Support Service, but also we want to support young people and um, uh, through their studies.
3: OK, and uh, John was also a stalwart of the North Heidelberg uh, Football Club, a club located in the solid yeah. working class suburb. <laughs> yeah.
9: You've done your homework, <laughs> <laughs> Um Yes, he was. Uh, both our sons played for North Heidelberg. Uh, John had uh, some friends that were connected with the club, and and uh, so Mick and Shane um, uh, joined the club, and along with some of their other their other mates. And uh, one of the things about it was that yeah, North, he- North Heidelberg and West Heidelberg is uh, is an area of disadvantage, um, and there were lots of kids that couldn't afford to their parents couldn't afford the the footy gear for them to play, and um, so the the club used to raise some funds to support them, and um, we we continue to support uh, to support that club uh, through our sponsorship. And we we see that um, providing opportunities for young kids to participate in team sports um, is a really um, good, really valuable part of their growing up.
3: Okay, I'm always uh, reminded of uh, John's contribution to the football club by one of my uh, comrades from work, uh, Charlie Bling, who's. So coming up shortly is uh, the main fundraising event uh, for the year for the Cummins uh, Foundation. Uh, so what are the details of the 2015 John Cummins Memorial Fund annual dinner? Yeah.
9: Uh, thanks, Marcus. Great to have the opportunity to, to plug the dinner. Um, it's uh, coming up on Friday the 28th of August. It's at Mooney Valley Racing Club, as it has been every year except the first year. Um, you'll be interested to know that our keynote speaker this year is Jed Carney, okay. um, ACTU President, as you would know. Um, our theme is leadership, so Jed will give a brief, a brief um, uh, speech presentation on leadership. Uh, and the ent- People are usually entered, uh, interested in um, who's playing, because um, we like people to have, have a good night. We've got Ross Wilson this year, Ross Wilson and the Peace Mix. Okay. So that should be a bit of fun for those that know Ross Wilson and his music.
3: And how can listeners purchase tickets to this year's Memorial Dinner?
9: Um, Yeah, thanks, Marcus. Uh, They're $135 each for a ticket. That's a three-course meal and drinks provided, and, of course, the entertainment. Um, And you can go online to uh, camo.com.au and click on the link to the dinner and um, you can purchase tickets online, Um, that's probably the easiest.
3: Okay, if we can just go back to the uh, fundraising efforts. At last year's dinner, a new fund in the foundation uh, was launched to uh, provide grants of a sporting nature and one which was named in honour of one of uh, John's many comrades.
9: Yeah, John Lowe. Um, Yeah, thanks. I was um, wanting to mention that as well. Um, Yes, we're really pleased um, to um, have some be able to recognise John Lowe at, at last year's dinner. And um, so what we, uh, through Joe, his son, um, we formed a partnership with uh, with Cricket Victoria. Uh, we call it Lowe's Legends. And uh, we funded Cricket Victoria $2,000 to extend their cricket clinics for kids in the northwestern metro area, um, primary school kids. And uh, so they have young boys and girls participate um, at those cricket clinics and uh, they go on through, you know, um, have a number of sessions through the summer months. And we're going to continue that partnership um, in memory of, uh, of John Lowe um, uh, for as long as we can. So certainly we've agreed to continue it this year. And um, if we keep on doing well with our fundraising, we'll, we'll continue it for the years to come.
3: OK, uh, thanks for coming on today's program, Di, to talk about the uh, John Cummins Memorial Foundation and the life of uh, John.
9: OK, thanks, and I hope you make it to the dinner, Marcus. Thanks, Di. OK, great. Thanks for the opportunity. OK. See
2: and I'm
3: sure we'll all we'll
2: see you all down at uh, Como's uh, dinner at the end of August. There... Oh,
9: yeah, it
4: was the 28th of August, is that right?
2: That's exactly right. And uh, I know you probably all know the story of... Uh, uh, the uh, he, uh, the brain tumour that uh, got uh, John Cummings, and, and they support, this is what this dinner's about, they support uh, the um, a facility at uh, one of the major hospitals in uh, the one that looks after the research and the care of people with uh, that kind of uh, cancer. So uh, all, uh, strong, um, more strength to the arm for those people. Now, I have to um, mention something that uh, out of the ele- uh, the interview with uh, COGO earlier that we had about the July the 18th, there's so much to say about that anti-fascist uh, rally and uh, we will be talking about that later and we will be creating some material around the stuff that we uh, collected on the day and also interviews with people like you, Kim, who uh, were on the ground.
4: Yeah, I got a little bit of the um, pepper spray. Uh, But I I found it, well, A, painful, but also somewhat interesting because I'd written an article earlier about the militarisation of the police and I'd read that they were going to change from the previous sort of aerosol pepper spray that they had uh, to a foam-based one, which is what I experienced for the first time at the anti-fascist demonstration because they like to both um, taser and pepper spray people at the same time but the previous spray was flammable. <laughs> so that was somewhat of a problem. So they've changed to this orange foam, which I dislike because I've got oh. quite a lot of it stuck in my hair and I couldn't see it because it's exactly the same colour as my hair. But, um, and also it stings very much.
2: Yeah, it's frightening, isn't it? And, and it? and you can't accuse the police of not being practical.
4: That's true. I mean, I, didn't even, I couldn't even see the police and I got sprayed, so they were just using it indiscriminately
2: yeah and i think the uh the, the verb like <laughs> or adjective actually like uh, they like to do this mm. it might be something that people should interrogate but anyway the street medics uh COGO was saying that they used all their uh materials and uh other types of medical supplies and so they've been uh crowdfunding to replenish their supplies uh after the July the 18th stoush. So if you go online, you can help uh, support them, ozcrowd.com, campaigns, Melbourne Radical First Aid Group needs your help, support the Melbourne Street Medics, but I just suspect you should go to ozcrowd.com, O-Z-C-R-O-W-D.com. Uh, to the count campaign section and you'll be able to find the street medics call for help. I noticed that uh, I looked it up and they were looking for $2,500, which is incredibly abstemious of them, I thought. And uh, they were already up to two thousand oh four one. Uh, Oh,
4: that's good. I mean, because they're just so generous and I was thinking on the day, I don't know where they're getting all this stuff from. There's all this milk and it probably cost them $1,000 just in milk, I think. (laughs) I know, it was a bit of carnage, wasn't it? Milk everywhere. (laughs) Milk everywhere. (laughs) You know, uh, when you're a kid,
2: you have this whole thing about, oh, don't. Don't spill milk on the carpet. You know, don't when, cry
4: over spilled milk. That was quite not wrong. It's all these <laughs> people crying with milk yeah. on their face.
2: I always have the impression of maggots coming if you don't clean it off fast um, uh. <laughs> <laughs> enough. <laughs> um but anyway uh there's before we go on to uh this is the week that was we do have a couple of things to uh remind you of uh in in terms of refugees which is going to be the story we're going to talk about in the next half hour the alp and their refugee policy um freedom stories which is on at uh, cinema nova has got now an extended season it's uh Freedom Stories takes a, look, a considered look at the lives and a, not just a casual look at the uh, successes of former boat people who uh, have spent the last decade making Australia their home. And uh, it's I've seen it. It's a very uh, considered uh, interesting uh, Uh, a collection of people who have done extraordinary things in the Australian context. So get get down to Nova and uh, get a ticket and find out more about some of those people who have made successes. But also the uh, tragedy of uh, wasted years uh, that were based on uh, Australian uh, policy around refugees. Mm. Pretty outrageous. Anyway, we now move on to Kevin and uh, the week that was.
1: A weak Solidarity Bricky team listener when ecclesiastical events dominated. The domination of the bishops, well, the bash ups. Ronnie bash up the socialists, Julie bash up the workers, and former Ballarat representative of the dear baby Jesus bash up the victims. Ron Mulcares-Little, who turned up in court in just another case of just another priest victimising children to swear by almighty God he couldn't recall a thing about how he covered up and shuffled the pedophiles around. His take-up-thy-bed-and-walk performance, presumably to assist the accused, now looks like landing him before the Royal Commission where his sickbed had previously conveniently excused him. And Bronnie finally said, sorry. Just wondering, Bronnie, would you have said sorry if you hadn't been sprung? I don't follow. That's why I'm sorry. Uh, But you said it was a question of judgment. Certainly I judged. I wouldn't get sprung. By the by, got any weddings this weekend, Bronnie? No answer. She's gone. She's dashed off to fill out her saying I'm sorry expense form." Her colleague and leader of the House Under Neutral, Bronnie Christopher payne the said he was standing firm behind Bronnie as Speaker. Uh, why? She gets rid of all those dreadful socialists in no time, makes it a much more pleasant workplace, and she has explained the situation, and I accept that explanation, he squeaked. Worry here, listener, is that this man is the Minister for Education. Say so you accept her explanation and ignore the evidence, Christopher. Look, yes, it's similar to climate change. The evidence is socialist bias, socialist propaganda, aided and abetted by that socialist sympathizer, Lord Rupert of Wapping. It, it is silly to say education should look at all sides of issues when there is only one side. There would be no other side, no unscientific, totally illogical side if it were not for the socialists. And Julie Bash up the workers berated Russia for vetoing her motion to condemn Russia because Julie and Big Supremo Tiny a bit more for the bosses No, Russia did it. It was it a disgrace that a country would use its veto this way she was so angry. You don't see our very, very, very close friend the US of the UN of the US of the world abusing its right of veto. It uses it responsibly to protect its and therefore our very, very, very close friend Zion. Those who also love and cherish that great, close and meaningful relationship, the Socialist Party, reinforced its socialist and their socialist credentials, and just as the vote to sink the boats looked like it might be a touch close, might sink, good to see Great Left Numbers Supremo, sorry, Great Left Supremo Kim Il car subsidies, leap to the rescue, guaranteeing Supremo and would-be Big Supremo Little Billy Shorten Ambition the numbers. Well, by numbers, that's all that matters. Proving that sinking boats and sending desperates back to the vicissitudes of the open seas is left socialism. But just in case Kim Il's support doesn't absolutely convince us that sending desperates back to where they came from Perhaps that show should have been shown a week earlier, although little matters like humanity amid inhumanity don't count when it comes to numbers and votes. After all, they need to be in government to display their humanity. Doesn't absolutely convince us that sending desperates back to where they came from, if they make it, is left of left socialist policy and principle. Here's the definitive proof. The CFMEU and the MUA, great left-wing unions, joined with right-wing unions to ensure little Billy got the numbers, turning back to sink and drown any chance of true blue Aussie accepting those fleeing persecution, including fleeing our very own invasions and their aftermaths. Kim il subsidies did display his socialist credentials by arguing there was no need to abandon the Socialist Party's socialist objective. It's not like we ever take it seriously. He injected his thumbs importantly into the vest of his three-piece suit uniform. Speaking of, he's certainly looking very fit and healthy, isn't he? The, The classic starving socialist. It's very encouraging. Despite Kimil's celebrations at the left of left victories, probably putting a few more millimetres at least on that Falstaffian waistline, sensibly those policies were adjusted to the problems socialists face when faced with government. So same-sex marriage gives them a conscience, dear baby Jesus vote, and other vaguely progressive policies will be considered by a socialist government. Renewable energy is a possible target, not locked in, bit of flexibility, or as little Billy kept repeating, a short and ambitious socialist government, modest little chap, we'll consider the policies we told unions and party members we said we'd consider but we must also consider the impacts on other affected parties like the caring business class the profiteers the chambers of profits and the caring business councils of profits and the resources profits councils among others and and then balance those interests as socialist governments always balance those interests balance those consider interests the logic of the week award must go to the minister for social insecurity scuttle them more last son who said the socialist decision to give mps a conscience dear baby jesus vote on same-sex marriage clearly meant the caring business class party did not have to give mps a conscience dear baby jesus vote an explanation of the logic behind that would have helped but But dear baby Jesus has spoken to Tiny a bit more for the bosses and we will vote with his conscience and my conscience. Uh, What about the conscience of those who support same-sex marriage? I think you will find when it comes to a vote... And our intention is to ensure, in the interests of public morals, public morality, that it doesn't. But if, then I think you will find 100% of caring business class party members oppose same-sex marriage. Um, What about Tiny's sister? We are praying for her. Scuttle them, your Logic of the Week award is on the way. We may recall in 2012, resource digger Upper and MP Clive Parmagena was hailed for True Blue Aussie's greatest act of philanthropy when he established a $100 million charity foundation. Well, we're pleased to announce that at last count, this greatest act had all of $104 in it, just the odd nine hundred and ninety grand whatever short, which in fairness is $4 more than it had last year, but Clive explained it was to receive royalties from this Chinese partnership, this company he's now suing, so don't blame Clive, blame the bloody commies. It's always the bloody commies or the greenies or the terrorists. In sport, the big news has been, a, has been booing a dual Brownlow medal and dual premiership player who proudly upholds his Aboriginality. But great thinkers like former celebrity centre half forward Dimwit brought it on himself, said he was sick of all these black people in the outer booing player just because they're white. In the other matter, booing is just part of the game, it's not racist. See, some people, not necessarily dimwit or former Brisbane publicity seeker Jason Backer racist, conceded maybe 25% racist, but then Adam Goods plays for free kicks. Gee, that must come as a shock to every other player at every level. No one booed little Kebby Bartlett and they had to change the rules thanks to him and this year they've changed the the round-the-neck rule for the same reason and Adam embarrassed a 13-year-old girl just because she called him an ape in the Indigenous round. How dare he spontaneously react? And don't worry that when he, when he learns he, she was 13, he said he didn't blame her, but blamed the racist environment. And as True Blue Aussie of the Year, he outrageously raised Indigenous first-person issues. What an insult to the white majority. Just cop the award and shut up. Or show his appreciation by thinking thanking we whites for the great things we've done for his people. Now, these, it's not racist, or maybe just a little bit, people argue, there's these other issues. Maybe Dimwit and Jason et al. can explain which bit of booing because he was upset at being called an ape, and which bit of booing for raising Indigenous issues as True Blue Aussie of the Year is not racist. Finally, another consider for a socialist government arising from the talk fest was this buffhead tax, named after a US hub investor, which may force, uh, I'm sure they'd find a way around it, the super-rich to, dare we say it, pay some tax took about 10 seconds, just in case the consider went the wrong way, for that great international advisor to the great practitioners of the greatest little economic order of them all, Price the Poor, What a House of Riches, one of the big four, to explain this would be a national and international disaster. Which is better for the economy? it pointed out sensibly. A taxpayer who just pays income tax and spends all their after-tax income... Sick. Sorry, must interrupt here. We all know grammatically the wrong person, the wrong tense. Suppose we can excuse him given the panic, the trauma that just maybe he or They may have to pay some tax anyway. And spends all their after-tax income or a taxpayer who pays less personal income tax because of funds spent taking commercial risks to create employment and opportunity for 10 other people. There, it's pure altruism, social consciousness. What better argument for the rich not paying tax? We can be sure little Billy will consider that argument. Good morning. This is the
7: move. This is a moment miraculous activist activity. Imagine this activist
6: activity. The fifth annual Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair will bring together an exciting range of independent booksellers, zinesters, and activist groups. The Book Fair showcases more than 40 stalls and a program of workshops. Come along to celebrate books, pamphlets and zines, including radical fiction, the anarchist classics and cutting-edge radical writers from around the world. It's a great opportunity to be introduced to new ideas, to challenge your thinking and to network with like-minded folks. It's free and we also provide free childcare. It's all happening at the Abbotsford Convent on Saturday, August 8th from 10am till 6pm, and with an after-party in a squatted space late into the night. Find out more at www.amelbournebookfair.org or find us on Facebook. The Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair, because another world is possible. The Anarchist Book Fair is a 3CR supporter.
2: And three CR is a supporter of the Anarchist Book Fair. Fabulous! Yeah, it's a it's a, a wonderful combination of political progression. <laughs> yeah. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, and as I promised, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the ALP conference and their refugee uh, turn back the uh, boat policy.
4: But uh, and uh, before that, yeah? before that, we have a um, a brief interview. Yeah, uh, with Con. No, and no, it's not an interview. No, what it is is this is what. Uh, say his name. Go on. I will. Um, Con Titus. Yes, I believe. Um, who's the CEO and founder of the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, and he made a speech. Yeah, that's right, it. Yeah. It's more of
2: a speech because give people an idea of what happened at the ALP conference was that uh, uh, the uh, demonstrators were out the front. You were part of the demonstrators?
4: Yeah, I did actually. I could sort of see him speaking, but there was too much shouting. Yeah,
2: that's exactly (laughs) right. But uh, uh, the way the ALP conference uh, operated, which was quite similar to the ACTU Congress, which I went to, uh, where they had uh, the main plenary sessions where they were dealing with the uh, changes to the chapter... Chapters, that's what they like to call them. Chapter and verse. Yeah, chapter and verse. And uh, and in other parts of the building, uh, they had uh, a fringe events, which were about uh, looking at uh, a festival of ideas, mm-hmm. basically, while the rest of it was considered to be a festival of democracy. I actually heard uh, Andrew Lee, one of the uh, ALP um, uh, MPs who was uh, – uh, tasked with being a public uh, face of the conference, say that to the ABC commentators when they were uh, doing an interview with him for one of their breakfast shows. It was a festival of democracy because the ALP's the only political party in Australia that actually opens their doors to everybody to uh, record and to uh, come to all their events, but of course not their private factional meetings.
4: Yes, I think a lot of the time it's the have been watching The Killing Season, which is kind of disturbing. <laughs> uh, but it's interesting to see how they opera- operate. And there seems to be a lot of um, phone calls. Phone yes, calls. <laughs>
2: that's right. Maybe it's a bit like uh, 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 online uh, bidding at an auction.
4: Yes, they were always kind of silently yeah, walking away with the phones.
2: Yeah, that's right. But anyway, all the pollies were given instructions to act like normal people. So they threaded around the place, handshaking, talking, lining up for their sangers, that sort of stuff. So I got to see Wayne Swan looking g- collecting his sandwiches and um Jenny macklin being being called out jenny your your coffee's here <laughs> so that was pretty impressive but uh, so you
4: were convinced that they are the actual people
2: yeah real people and uh, they could manage they weren't uh, having hives because they had to act normal, so uh, they are up to that task but in terms of the refugee thing, that was fascinating because the chapter there were two parts of it that uh, one part seems to have been overlooked generally speaking, as people have focused on the decision to say that the ALP in their chapter are going to uh, remove, uh, see, the change. The uh, change was supposed to be that they would insert the notion that they would not support turn back the boats, okay? Mm. It wasn't there in the beginning. It was part of putting it in. So the, uh, the motion was that it should be put in and uh the other part of it was that uh someone had, had put forward the notion that if you had offshore detention centers uh then uh, if you could not run one of these to cent- to det- uh, these processing centers without it being uh unsavoury uh, d- d- uh, hole. <laughs> well, you know, they they didn't call it that, but if you couldn't run it properly, then it should be closed down and then it should become onshore. That was the other proposal that was being put forward. Now, that is absolutely essential for uh, Australia to be respectable uh, in this area, it seems to me, but that was sort of sidelined and when uh, the decision was made that uh, uh then both were rejected, right? Mm. Okay. Now uh the uh important thing about all this is that uh it was all political. All political, not moral. So a lot of the time people were uh voting for this, it was already decided. I had the distinct impression that the vote was already decided, even though there were eight speakers, four for and uh four against and uh, even though the chair said, oh, that was the most amazing debate I've ever seen in the 30 years that I've been sitting up here. The most
4: amazing debate they never had, really.
2: Yeah, that's right. So, now, Con did this speech in in a fringe event. We're going to bring you half of it. It's uh, uh, to compare the two pieces of emotional... Uh, the the aspect of the emotions behind these debates because we're going to compare it with the speech that was given by Tony Burke during the debate session where he was mawkishly trying to put forward the scenario that would allow the delegates not to feel like arseholes for voting for something that should never possibly been possible to be voted uh, against.
4: I think they're going to have to make theatrical training uh, mandated for all Labor Party MPs in the future, really. All right, let's listen to what Con had to say.
10: Here is where we are. Here is what every day looks like for me and the people that I work with at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Every day it is there trying to stop people from dying. Every day it is there trying to stop people from taking their lives. These extraordinary freedom seekers, People seeking our protection. People seeking our refuge. The most extraordinary, resilient and courageous people are being broken down to nothing. This is a system that is built to dismantle them. In the 14 years that I've done this for, saturated into my body, into every living fiber of it, are the horror of the stories of what people have fled, but even worse, what we have done to them once they've got here. And I've seen it all from rushing to hospitals in the middle of the night because 10-year-old little girls are trying to hang themselves with bedsheets. I've seen it all in sitting there and actually stopping men from bleeding out in front of me as they slash their wrists. I've seen it all in being on the phone at 1 in the morning trying to talk someone out of slashing their throat because they're about to be deported and i would rather die as a free man than be sent back to their death. I've seen it all in sitting there and trying to explain to people how with people with such resilience and resourcefulness and ability are stripped of the right to work, of health care. And that they tell me, in my great country of Australia, this is a country that tortures me worse than any regime in Iran or Afghanistan or Iraq because they torture me in the inside. They torture me by making me feel like I am fucking nothing, that I am invisible, that I do not exist. From nothing to zero, I go. I've sat there and listened to many a broken father sit there and say to me, Con, I am no father, I'm no husband, I'm no man. What it is like to take from people their very basic right of dignity, the right to put food on the table for your fat. The right to keep your children safe from harm. In the last week we've been hearing about the Nuru Inquiry. Let's break it down into really simple terms. And we see these kids at my centre. Pamela, who I workers, is talking about a little two year old who, outside of his parents, called everyone God. Because he didn't know there was any other way he meant to talk to them. And well, she'd taken some kids out um, to a local playground. And at the little kids are sitting there staring at the, at the playground equipment. And she's saying to them, why aren't you climbing? They didn't think they were allowed to. They're sitting there thinking they've got to ask for permission. This inquiry this week talks about things like children being raped in showers. Children as young as five being sexually abused. 30 children being raped or physically abused and not a single damn person charged. One seven-year-old, sexually abused in February. And when Wilson security was asked about it, they said, we don't know if they're still here. Transferred with a $1.2 billion contract, having children going without shoes and clothing. Women having to sit there and queue like animals. To get sanitary items off a male guard. The Moss report. I asked for two more minutes in the shower. The guard said I could have it if I showed my body or that of my child. Seven year olds with marks around the neck Because they tried hanging themselves with cables. Where does that even enter the imagination of a child? Where does that even enter the imagination of a child? Less than three weeks ago, there were amendments put when there was an opportunity to close down Manus and Nauru. One of them was give Gillian Triggs access to Nauru. The Liberal Party and the Labour Party voted that down. Second, there was a requirement that put up mandatory reporting of child abuse on Nauru. The Labour Party stood with the Liberal Party and blocked that. And blocked that. I've had enough. I've had enough. I'll talk in my speech in a moment about the decent things that Labor's trying to do. But it pales in terms of the reality of what this is in there blindly allowing to happen. Out of pragmatism. Out of the reality of an election coming up. As though you can somehow trade your moral campus and somehow take it back at some convenient point in time. We need leadership for God's sake right now. Yes. Anymore. We have a royal commission into child abuse in churches. And we're laying the foundation right now for another one. We're not going to be able to sit there and say 20 years from now we did not know this was happening. And the question is why are these children's lives less precious than yours? Why? Why? Why do these kids have the same right to safety? To play? To a child? Who's going to give that back to these children? It's gone forever. We sit there on Manus Island. Bipartisan support for that. We have killed more refugees than we've resettled. 977 days. Two dead refugees and zero resettled. Three billion dollars. There's no shortage of money for bad policy, is there? There's no shortage of political will for shortcuts on morality and what is difficult to do because it's called leadership it's called actually doing what is right not what is expedient I'm just up to here with it when you sit there and you watch these politicians beating their chest about what they're going to do and how cruel they can be on the most defenceless persecuted people on earth as though there is a trophy anyone should hold up covered in the blood of refugees So where do we go from here? And what do we do now? There's some common ground that we share with Labor around what we want. And I'll acknowledge that for a moment because I need to be fair. I'm hardened that Labor wants to end temporary protection visas. These awful visas that leave people in limbo, separated from family, one of the most core values of our country, family. Leaving people mm-hmm. in limbo forever, never to touch and hold their wife and children again. It's heartening to see Labor want to increase the refugee humanitarian intake to 27,000. But it needs time frames on that, and it needs to go much further. It's heartening to hear Labor say we're going to scrap this awful Thank fast track. track, which simply means, guys, a legal system that's been set up by this current government to screw refugees over. Them. And it's heartening to hear Labor talking about we're going to engage more in our region. But we need detail. A lot of what you've been told now, labor values, 90 day time limits, 90 day processing of refugees' claims. I heard this back in 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010. Unless it is legislated in the law, it means nothing. The reality is mandatory detention, the system of that itself, is the root of all evil minute you take away discretion that's where you have babies locked up in detention centres that's where you have 90 year old blind grandmothers locked up in detention centres that's where you had 50% of women centre manners miscarrying that's where you've had 5 other women miscarried on the recently that's where you have situations like this that we had which was a woman on the rue who'd gone through female genital mutilation was 8 months pregnant the doctors there said she is going to die or miscarriage. And she was told by immigration, well, you can either die here or go back to Somalia. Which would you like? These policies that mandatory lock up people, we are the only country in the world that mandatorily and indefinitely detains children. The only country in the world that does this. The number of times we're taking calls now of women who have been safely resettled on the route who have then been gang raped. Not once, not twice, not isolated incidences. And Labor stood by and allowed things like the Border Force Act to go through. Mm -hmm. That seeks to silence whistleblowers. And people say, oh, it's not going to do that. Well, it is. Because when you had to save the children workers who reported child abuse, nothing was done for 17 months. The doctors that called me in the middle of the night whistleblowing, let me know of a man hunger striking to death in a hospital somewhere. That man now faces jail. Those brave doctors that wrote and answered Scott Morrison, when the kids on Christmas Island were being denied schooling for 13 months, were having their medicines and their glasses and their hearing aids confiscated from them, would now face jail. The use of force bill that's before us right now would give unlimited physical power to guards to beat people to death, basically. Seven guards, but there's been 402 people sacked in 18 months on the ruined manners. So yeah, we've got some common ground in terms of the Labor Party trying to stand for a few key things around fair processing, end of TPVs, better regional engagement, more compassionate treatment of asylum seekers. But on the pointy end, when policies and laws have been up for grabs, they've been found wanting all year long. And I'm just going to keep telling it like it bloody is because we are a humanitarian movement. We are a movement that is a civil rights movement. I don't give a shit about politics. And until we have political leaders that are willing to think the same way when it comes to the lives of people seeking protection, we're never going to bloody get there.
2: Now, that was con... I can't oh. say his name,
4: so... to <laughs> Titus, I believe.
2: Yes, and he's the CEO and founder of the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Now, he's a magnificent fellow, great Just speaker.
4: harrowing what he's talking about, but so inspiring to have someone who is just human.
2: Yeah, Being exactly. human. Exactly. Now, he uh, gave that speech uh, in a fringe event at the ALP conference. So, uh, so that, you know, says something about the... Uh, uh, breadth of um, capacity of that conference to actually air these views. But the thing that's very interesting about what happened and what Bill Shorten was really doing was that it wasn't about morality. It really was just about politics. This is our assessment. Mm, and uh, it's a big
4: difference between him and Con.
2: Yeah, big, big difference. Now, the uh, uh, before we have our comment, we'll go on to uh, an equally but I think uh, – Shameless uh, expression of emotion that was put forward by Tony Burke during the so-called debate uh, around this issue of turn back the boats, uh, because apparently turn back the boats saves lives, and this is part of the whole scenario that the ALP uh, um, were putting forward. The leadership were leadership were putting forward regarding this.
11: what that job involved, the choices that involved, and how that lends us to have to think very carefully when we use words like compassion that we all mean, but we all need to know the exact context. The number assigned to my time as Immigration Minister is 33. I was there for fewer than four months, and there are 33 lives that were lost on my watch. When I first got the list, I noticed the list was only of ages, but one of them was 10 weeks old. And I remember asking my staff to go to the department and get his name. And the staff came back and said, oh no, we've spoken to the department, they can't give you the name, you can't use it in the media at the moment uh, because the names can change, and the details can change. And I said, can you just tell them I don't want to use it in the media? He was 10 weeks old, he died on my watch, I just want to know his name. His name was Abdul Shafari. I was given his name on a post-it note And I kept that post-it note on my desk until we lost office. I kept it there for one very simple reason. We have to show compassion, not only to who was in our line of sight, but to everybody who was affected by our policies. I was a shadow minister for immigration before the 2007 election. I took to the election and to this conference a platform that the entire conference cheered. I changed our platform so that we stood for the abolition of temporary protection visas. And I can tell you from my perspective so clearly which policies work and which policies don't. And at the core is one principle. If a people smuggler is able to credibly argue to a desperate person, give me your life savings and I can get you to Australia and you'll be an Australian one day, then that desperate person in good faith will pay the money, take the risk and, in too many cases, end up dead. I want us to help more people than we've ever helped before. But I want everyone... In other policy debates, we often refer to the line, the evidence is in. On this one, the evidence is in. If on coming to government, we know we will be tested, and we know it. More than being tested, what the Liberals will do is exactly what they did when I introduced the regional resettlement arrangements. They will bugle a message out there claiming... And giving hope to smugglers, if you overwhelm it, it'll be okay. And straight away, they did it to Chris Bowen with the Malaysia arrangement as well, before they did the deal with the Greens. And more than half the people who drowned during our time in government drowned after the Liberal Party did that deal with the Greens. (laughs) They will do that again, and people will be given false hope. And the people smugglers will try to get a couple of voyages together. If we turn back those first few boats, and I'll tell you, if the only people in front of us were the people on those boats, if they were the only people in the line of sight, then I'd be arguing, just let them in. Because you want to help them. But be in no doubt. If we allow a consequence of our policies to be the people smugglers, Incredibly argue that they can sell someone the chance to be Australian, then good, desperate people will say that's worth the risk. Our compassion has to reach everybody our policies affect. And I implore the conference. And I don't misjudge in any way the good motivations of people who've reached very different conclusions to me. But I have no doubt whatsoever. If we give hope to the trade, we will end up helping fewer people, and hundreds will start the journey
2: but never complete it. There you go, Kim. You yes, can... It's all
4: about compassion and yeah. compassion.
2: You <laughs> can you can sell anything. Yeah. You can sell anything. So there you go, folks. You can make your own decisions about uh, what happened at the ALP conference. But I must say that I ended up thinking, well, if you just take away the morality, then it's all about politics and people really want to win that election.
4: Exactly. And we'll just have these people die elsewhere. Yeah.
2: Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And that's it, folks, for Solidarity Breakfast this, this week. Uh, who did we have on? We had, uh, Ronnie Carini, who told us about, uh, the, uh, uh, the Pacific Games, uh, and, uh, how the, uh, wrap up at Port Moresby and how they, uh, got a little bit of their democracy out with their singing and their dancing.
4: We had uh, Kogo from the Street Medics, which was... Uh, they do an incredible job at protests, especially at the anti-fascist demonstration on July 18th.
2: That's right. And uh, don't forget, you can go to Oz. Uh, What is it? Ozcrowd.com. That's it, and you can help them out to replenish their uh, supplies. We went on to uh, uh, Rank and File. We had uh, Kevin, and this is the week that was. And then we went to the ALP conference around refugees and uh, Con from the... uh,
4: Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, the CEO.
2: And Morkish, Tony... What's his name? Tony Burke. That's right. So that's us signing off. And coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. We'll go off with uh, Clean Our Heads Out with Phil Oakes.
4: One of the shadiest of these is the Liberals.
11: An outspoken group on many subjects. 10 degrees to the left of centre in good times.